So for the next two weeks, we are going to be in the Psalms as we kind of take a, a, a different tack and, and look at what's going on here. But this morning as we're in Psalm 33, it is a psalm that kind of redirects and, and refocuses where our, our, where our energy, where our attention should be. Not just at this time of year, but every time of year. We recognize, or I recognize anyway, that society is calling you to to really worship and praise and give your attention to, to things that society sets value on. And so it is, it's Christmas, and so we tend to set value on those around us. We tend to set value on ourselves, and so we want people to get us nice things. We want to give them nice things so they recognize we value them. We recognize they value us. Uh, this past week, uh, and, and this, this comes home for me too, right? We buy our kids presents. Valerie and I quit exchanging gifts a number of years ago. Um, I, I stopped and then she followed suit, but <laughs> this, this hits home for me as well. And so this past week kind of going on this idea and I knew what I was going to be preaching. I knew this about a month out. And so I started thinking along this and then something happened Monday that really helped to cement this idea for me that, that I too struggle with this idea that Christmas is about like getting Right? And so everybody says, or our, our, our society wants us to really move away from the idea that it's, you know, we're praising, we're honoring, you know, Walmart or Target or Amazon because we're giving them all of this money. Right? And so they, they, they kind of they give it this cultural good stamp of, of adopting this idea of what's better to, to give than to receive. And so that's, that's what people say. When you say, what's Christmas about? And they say, oh man, don't you know it's better to give than to receive? But, like, I really thought I believed that. So Monday, as I was saying, we, we have a, a gift exchange party with the staff, and so we go over to Carol B.'s house, and, and it's, everybody has drawn a name, and, and they're giving a gift, and giving like nice gifts, some nicer than others, so the people that give uh, me that I drew your name, I apologize, uh, I, I bought your gift in haste, um, but, it, but it's still a gift. Anyway, so nevertheless, so we're sitting around a circle, and they're going around, and they're opening it one at a time, and so the first person takes their gift, and they open it up, and they're like, wow, how did you buy a car for $20? Well, oh, I'm very frugal. And the next person's like, wow, how did you get this for, you know, for that? And, and they're going all around the circle, and then it comes to me. Well, I, I didn't get a gift. I, I didn't get a gift. It's not that someone didn't draw my name, it's that the person drew my name wasn't there and hadn't brought a gift to pass on to somebody else. And so it comes around, everybody's opening gifts, and it's just awesome. It's amazing the things people can buy for $20, $25. And, and, and then it comes to me, and I'm just like, oh, check this out, it's invisible! It's all I ever wanted in invisibility. It's compact, it carries well, this thing will last forever. I'm like, what is it? I'm like, it's nothing. It's invisible. And so it's, it's the idea of it's, it's better to than give to receive is, is starting to kind of work its way in my heart. And then we go to lunch and we're sitting down and Carol B has set these nice little mints out. And, and so I, I eat it because if it's around me, I eat it. And so we get to the end of the meal and so I eat it and I open up the wrapper and it says the, it's giving the reason for the season. That's what it says on this thing. I, I believe my staff is working to convince me that I need to give them something. I haven't figured out what that thing is yet. But this idea that it is giving, and, and so as a Christian, it comes to us, what do we give? What do we give? What do we give to God, right? If Christmas, if this time of year especially presents itself with unique opportunity to, opportunities for us to engage in the display of the gospel, we see nativity scenes set up everywhere, 
We see people kind of walking around singing Christmas songs. They don't know the words to them. If it gives us this understanding of kind of what is going on with that, then the idea comes, what is our proper response to God? Where does proper response and praise belong? Well, the scripture tells us that proper response and praise only belongs to God. Now, our society would tell us that we should praise, we should honor our children, our parents, but we recognize true honor and praise only goes to God. And this is a difficult message for us to get. It's a difficult message for us to get. When you look at the time, when you look at your energies, when you look at the way that you're exerting yourself, many of us are praising our spouses. Many of us are praising our children. Many of us are praising those around us. And these are good things, but we recognize that true praise only belongs to God. And so as we look at Psalm 33 today, we get an understanding, one, of why we should praise God, how we should praise God, and why God is worthy of praise. Let me read the first three verses for us. The author writes, he says, Shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten, ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Like, d- d- is this what praise looks like for you when you praise and honor and glorify God? Is this what it looks like for you? Is this what it looks like for us corporately? Well, well let's look at it. It starts off, he says, shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. The first thing we recognize is the, the proper person for praising, for glorifying God is declared as righteous. On what grounds, though? On the grounds that Jesus Christ has come in. He has saved you. He's taken out your, your old heart of stone. He's given you a new heart that beats for him. And the text declares to us that our, our declaration of praise should be one of shouting for joy in the Lord. We like orderly worship, right? Some of you are a little too orderly. This here is giving us this understanding that our worship, in some sense, should be orderly, but reckless. It shouldn't be neat. It shouldn't be this, you know, I gotta have you in four or four time and whatever that looks like, I gotta have you, you gotta nail that note. I see you missed that. You're a little bit sharp. Now you're a little bit flat. You gotta be right here. What does it look like? Let me ask you, as you go through your week, what does it look like for you to praise and honor God? What does it look like? For some of you, it's it's just mealtime, and so you get very, very somber at mealtime. It's almost like somebody's died. If somebody walked by your table at a restaurant after this, and we walk by, and you're like, hold on, i got to pray. Oh, Father, the most holy and awesome. And it's like 10 minutes later, your food is cold. You're still crying over your food. And that's what praise and worship looks like for you. That's what it looks like for too many of us. Too many in our community. Too many in our homes. Too many that we observe. Look, I waited tables. I saw this. People that leave terrible tips. When it came to time to pray, it was game time. Like when I walk up to their table, I'm like, you want more tea? And they're like, how dare you interrupt the kind of glory of God as we're praying for our food and you heathen. It's like, man, I was at church this morning. I didn't didn't see you, though. This is our worship time. Recognize that that praise and honor and glory to God, here is described in Psalm 33, comes in shouts. 
He comes in wild shouts, and that's why we can see children shout and declare praise and honor and glory to God, and it is just as beautiful to our Father in heaven as the most angelic voice of anybody in this choir, as the most angelic voice of anybody leading in worship, because God isn't measuring your praise according to the perfect pitch that you deliver. He's measuring your praise according to your heart reflection of him in response to what he has done for you. Now look here what it tells us. It says, praise befits the upright. This is what Christians should look like. Praise befits the upright. This should be who you are. This should be what you do because it's who you are. Some of you say, well, I don't, I don't particularly like that song. I don't particularly like the way that it's done. I don't particularly like, like uh, this, that, or whatever. Like, I, I don't know where you got this idea that it's about you and your preferences. Before Valerie and I came to Ridgecrest, it seems like every church we'd been a part of for our married life, there was one church that we enjoyed the music of. And I led the music of one of these, and that's not the one I enjoyed the music of. (laughs) Praise befits the upright. He declares you as righteous. He calls you, he has made you a worshiper, as we've been studying in Ephesians. Praise befits the upright. Are you praising him? Are you praising God in the way that you live your life? Are you declaring praise to him as we gather in corporate worship? Or are you sitting back and passively observing? God is not honored. He is not praised by your passive indifference to worshiping him in song. And men are probably the most culpable of this. Like I don't know at at what point in our lives that we say, look, I'm manly, guys don't sing. We just, we just don't. Like, at what point in your life did you get to the point where, where in your mind, now you're, you're too old, you're too mature to praise and honor and worship your God through song? It just doesn't happen. You don't come to a point in your life where you can quit praising him. You don't come to a point in your life in Christian maturity where you stop singing and declaring praises to him. In fact, if you have quit singing praises to our God, that's an indication that something has gone wrong with you, not that something that is going right with you. Amen? Praise befits the upright. Now look what he says here. He says, verse 2, Give thanks to the Lord with lyre, make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. He's describing various types of worship. You've got different instrumentation. We've got a variety of instrumentation. By all accounts, our worship expression is eclectic. Right? By all accounts, our worship expression here at Ridgecrest is eclectic. We have a variety of instruments that I've never seen come together before. Right? They have, they have come across the tracks together. They have come together. We are seeking to praise him in this way. But look what he says. He says, sing to him a new song. Now, he's not talking about writing new composition. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is on the basis of a new or renewed experience with God, declare praise to him. On the basis of a renewed or new experience with God, declare praise to him. This is what David is talking about in Psalm 40. When he talks about he goes through these terrible things, and as a result of it, he comes through, and he sings a new praise to God. Some of us, our life is terrible. Some of you have have sick relatives. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you are encountering terrible things that I I can't even imagine. I can come to you. I can pray with you, but I really can't get 
at all the pain and all the difficulty that your life is producing in you. And you know what the Psalms tells us? That even that, even that can produce a new song of praise to God. Friends, this is the God we serve. That he can take all the mistakes, all the agony, all the pain in your life, and he can make the most majestic, moving piece of music out of your life. He takes all of your pain, he takes all of your anguish, he takes all of your joy, and he's seasoning, and he's making this beautiful song that resounds in praise and honor, not to you that you endured these things that resound in honor and glory to him. That's what he's doing. He is calling us to sing a new song on the basis of those things he has led us through. He is calling us to make a new song to him on the basis of all that hurt and all the agony and all the overcoming joy and all the tremendous experience. He's calling us not to look at it and say, oh my word, thank God I made it through. He's saying, no, on the basis of all these things, oh my God, I declare praise to you. Amen? Sing to him a new song with loud shouts. With loud shouts. Does this look orderly to you? Does this look reserved to you? Does this look like a guy in a three-piece suit? He's got the vest, he's got the tie. The tie like that is choking him, and he's just right there, and he's not sweating because he's not putting out any energy. No, this looks reckless. This looks like somebody who's unashamed of the gospel. This looks like somebody who's singing and playing for an audience of one God, holy and mighty, who sits in heaven and observes, who looks at the heart and observes. This looks like worship before the creator, amen? Shouts of joy. Now look here in four and five. Four and five lay out for us the entire psalm. Four and five lay out for us the entire psalm. They are, in some sense, the summary statements that are developed in the remainder of the psalm. He says, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. In 4 and 5, what we see is the breakdown of the entire thing. Now, if you are a, a very good note taker, let me go ahead and give this to you, and you can verify it later. In the first part of 4, we, what we're going to see is that he's going to modify 6 through 9. This idea in the first part of four that the word of the Lord is upright is really expounded in six through nine. The second part is expounded in 10 through 12. The third part is expounded in 13 through 15. And finally in 16 through 19, the last part of verse five is expounded. Well, let's look at this first idea. He says, for the word of the Lord is upright. Hmm. Six through nine. He says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Look at the powerful display of God's word. For the word of the Lord is upright, it's trustworthy, it's, it's, it's valid to our lives. And in six through nine, he gives us this display of exactly how the word of the Lord is upright. Look at the first thing he says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Well, this is 
quite simply just a summary statement of what we see in Genesis 1 through 8. Genesis 1, 1 through 8. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now look here in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. God, through the declarative power of his voice, moves and he shows tremendous power and ability as he is creating from nothing by the agency of his voice. How is that something we're not completely laying on the ground declaring, oh, you're so worthy to be praised and honored and glorified? Because God, it's not that he rolled up his sleeves and he did something tremendously difficult for him. He spoke. He spoke and he created everything. By what process? We don't see there in Genesis. But the sum and substance of it is that he set out to do it and he accomplished it by virtue of his will, by virtue of his commanding and authoritative voice. We see that the heavens were made. Now look here, there's this amazing word. And by the breath of his nostrils, all their hosts. Flip over to Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 26. Isaiah takes this same idea and, and gives us this amazing picture of it. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the, great, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This great God, who is worthy to be praised, spoke. And all the world was made. This great God who is worthy to be praised spoke and all the stars hung in the sky. Is this God not worthy of your displays of shouting and praise and adoration? What more should this God do? Well, look here. We continue to read of his extraordinary ability, his extraordinary creative prowess in verse 7. He says, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. But in verse 8, he changes. In verse 8, he changes. He says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is what he says. This is mankind's appropriate response to God. Reverential fear and awe. Reverential fear and awe that we recognize what God has done and on the basis of his activity in the creative world and in our own hearts, we're in awe of him. It's not that we sit here and we seek to explain it first and foremost. It's not that we, we seek to like pour out our minds and wrap our thoughts around it, but what we first respond to him, the first way we respond to him is in awe. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. On the basis of what God did, on the basis of his creative endeavors, creative abilities, we should praise God. I had a friend a number of years ago that lived in kind of the, the Vale Valley area very beautiful if you've been up there, the aspen trees, the, the, the mountains, and it's just phenomenally gorgeous. It's, it's hard to go there and not see the handiwork of God and just kind of, I mean, I don't live there, and so I lived in Houston at the time. Houston's flat. It's not all that great to see, 
But you go to Colorado and you see it and you're just like, oh man, this is, this is amazing. As a Christian, I see that and I praise and glory and honor for God. But I, so I asked him, he lived there for a year and a half or so, and I said, what's it like? He said, well, it's about like anything. You wake up in the morning, you're like, yeah, more snow on the mountains. Ugh. Like, really? He said, yeah, you know, you just, you just kind of get used to it at one point. I mean, one morning you wake up, and it's not like you set out in your mind to say, I'm not wowed by this at all. I'm not impressed by this at all. I don't think this is beautiful at all. He's like, I really enjoy it. I love to snowboard. I said, so you just, you just kind of wake up, and you see it? He's like, yeah, you know, it's just kind of my scenery while I commute 30 minutes. Gorgeous mountain traffic. Gorgeous mountain. Black ice! Right? That's what I would be thinking. I'm like, I'm on edge. But he said that just this, the, the beauty of it all was just kind of lost on him after a while. Too many of us in our Christian walk, this is kind of where we're at. Like before we come to Christ, as you're hearing about him and all the love that he has for you, you are floored. You're destroyed. And in the midst of trial and difficulty, you're, you're laid low because you're, you, you think, how can he love me? As unlovable, as terrible, as, as beneath him as I am, how can he love me this way? But at some point in your life, you just begin to think the whole thing's rather mundane, rather, rather ordinary. God of the universe loves me. Yeah, the God that uh, spoke everything into existence, he, he looks favorably upon me. You don't fries for that? I mean, this is just, it's just rather ordinary for us. Friends, these things should not be. There should never come a point in our lives where we're not moved by the tremendous display of power that God has and that he has visited his love upon us in the person of Jesus Christ. The appropriate display of his word should be for us to love him, that we should fear him, that we should have reverential awe before him. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. It's not passing away. It's not deteriorating. It is holding fast and true. Now look here at the second part of verse 4. He says, all his work is done in faithfulness. He really parses this out for us in 10 through 12. 10 through 12 says this. The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord, though, it stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Hmm. All his work is done in faithfulness. We recognize that everything God does, he is faithful to see through. Everything that we see come to pass, it is God exercising, demonstrating his faithfulness to us and all those around us. And the first thing that we see there is the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. It's not mankind getting together and deciding to do things apart from God's intervention or orchestration therein. Said more plainly, it's not that, that our government gets together and says, look, we're going to do this. It doesn't matter what God does. You see, if God is not involved, then all of these things fall apart. We recognize that God is the one who is bringing their counsel to nothing. God is the one who's sovereignly superintending his purposes. He's sovereignly superintending all the affairs of the universe. As opposed to their counsel and their wise minds who come together and they're frustrated and they can't figure things out. 
Man, do we not see this in our own government? Do we not see this in our own city government? Do we not see this in our own households that we come together and we've got warring factions and they both want to do what they think is best, right? It's just one side thinks the other side is stupid. One side looks at the other side and says, how can, how can your perspective absolutely be best because ours is? Oh, my stupid, stupid friend. Our nation comes together. Nations of the world come together and their plans are frustrated, but we see that opposed to them who cannot be singular in purpose and focus, the counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. All of God's work is done in faithfulness. Now look here, verse 12. It says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it's not the nation setting their hope on God that makes them God's nation. It's not the nation setting their hope on God. It's not that a group of people got together and you said, look, we got a pantheon of gods. Let's run down through the list and figure out who we want to be our sovereign. We got Zeus, and he's got those lightning bolts. We recognize he, he just comes to earth too often. We've got his half-child, Hercules. All right, next, God. Poseidon, I've always liked the water. Mm, he's got that trident, I don't know, that's kind of scary. What if he stabs me in my sleep? Okay, moving on. It's not that uh, this is a description of nations coming together and moving through this pantheon of gods and saying, we like Yahweh, let's make him our God. He, he, he's a pretty good guy, let's, let's take him. This is not what's described. Look at Deuteronomy 4.20. Deuteronomy 4.20 is an accounting of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. God has set his favor on Israel. You can see that in Genesis 12 and following. He blesses them for what purpose? We read in Genesis 12, 1-3, he blessed them that they might be a blessing. But he sets his favor upon them. And in verse 20 we read, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are to this day. And if you look right above that, he describes all of these things that they need not set their focus on, lest they worship them instead of him. Look at verse 19, he says, And beware lest you raise your eyes to the heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has a lot of the peoples under the whole heaven. God created. And even his own people, who he called, who he chose, who he set aside, he's giving them this warning that you're gonna find lesser things, things that God created. And your temptation, your tendency is going to be to worship the created instead of worshiping the creator. And so he gives them this understanding that he has chosen them. And they're blessed on the result of that. And you and I recognize that he chooses us in Christ. He chooses you who are wholly unlovable, wholly lost, admired in sin. And he reckons you lovely. He chooses you who are lost, who are stained with sin, pride, lust, envy, the whole gambit. 
He saves you. Makes his favor to rest on you. He reckons you lovely. And he calls you to worship him. All his work is done in faithfulness, even to us. Now look here in verse 5. It says, he loves righteousness and justice. In 13 through 15, further expounding upon that, it says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And he who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. He gives us this amazing picture. God is sits enthroned in heaven. God sits and he reigns from heaven. And, and from his vantage point, he looks out, he sees Corey, he sees Lauren, he sees Chase, he sees Ben. He sees all of us. Not just as the people on our pews beside us or the people in our work with us Monday through Friday see us. He sees our true intention. He sees our hearts. He knows just how truly terrible some of you are. He knows how truly terrible I can be. He knows me on my good days. He knows me on my bad days. And this God, he is not impressed by my displays of outward righteousness. He's not, displayed, he's not impressed by yours either. But this God, this God who, who sits there, the text tells us that he loves righteousness and justice. And from his vantage point, he looks for it. From, from God's vantage point in heaven, unobscured, he looks into your heart and he's looking for justice and righteousness. Which by virtue of Christ, he's planted there to grow and produce fruit. He looks down, he sees the children of man. He looks down on all the inhabitants of the earth. He's not just looking on those whom he has redeemed. He's looking at everybody. He's looking for justice. He's looking for righteousness. But look what else we see here. He who fashions the hearts of them all. God has created the heart of man to know him. This God who created everything, who spoke and it came to be, who spoke and made it stand firm. This God took you, he took me, he fashioned my heart, he fashioned your heart to know him. He took your lost loved one's heart, he fashioned it so that he or she would only ultimately be satisfied in so much as they cry out and recognize God as Savior. And we spend, as humanity, we spend untold resources of energy, of time, of money, trying to satisfy that heart that he's created, only to be satisfied in him. True satisfaction only comes as humanity returns praise and honor to God, recognizing him as the one who has fashioned our hearts, as the one who's fashioned our hearts, is he not also rightly free to fashion them in such a way that they might only be satisfied in worshiping him? Some of you have been angry for so long. You've been hurting for so long. You've been frustrated for so long. Life just doesn't seem fair to you. You've been trying to be satisfied. Some of you believe the Snickers add a little too much, and so you kept eating them, waiting on it to satisfy you. But recognize that only God satisfies. Only God can make you whole. This God, he desires to make your heart 
a home where truth, justice, and righteousness might grow. They might flourish. He loves righteousness and justice. This God who fashions all the hearts of humanity. Hmm. But this God who fashions the hearts of them, we recognize also that he observes all their deeds. Friends, God is not misled. God is not duped. God is not confused. He sees, he observes from heaven. He sees everybody. He's made your heart and my heart. He knows us intimately. And he sees everything you do. He observes all of your deeds. Now on the basis of his creation, if you weren't driven to fear and to love him, surely when you realize that this God looks at every part of your inward being, this God who formed your heart to only be a home for him. This God who formed your heart to only beat for him. He's observing all of your deeds and he's crying out to you, submit to me. He sees everything. He sees all the things that you prefer that would remain in the dark, remain hidden. And he cries out to you, come and worship me. Come and and worship the king. God should be worshiped because he's a God who loves righteousness and justice. And he sees us even as we are. He observes all of our deeds and still bids us come. Now look here. The last descriptor of why God is worthy to be praised. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 16 through 19 tells us the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The first thing we recognize here, the first thing we recognize here is that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord, it's the thing that accomplishes these. Humanity comes together, and we try and accomplish great things. We try and overcome tremendous armies. We try and overcome tremendous adversity. We try and cure cancer. We try and end world hunger. We try and end poverty. None of these things will ultimately find satisfaction. None of these things will ultimately be achieved outside of the steadfast love of the Lord. Outside of the steadfast love of the Lord... We're just spinning our wheels. Outside of the steadfast love of the Lord and his intervention in the plans of man, we will come to nothing. We will always find one more thing to overcome. We will always find one more misdeed to undo. We will always find one more hard hurting. We will always find one more person in need. Outside of the steadfast love of the Lord, all of humanity is spinning its wheels and making no progress. He says... This king is not saved by his great army, a warrior not delivered by his great strength. A king with all his power to command people and say, go and do. A warrior with all his great strength to defend, to strike down his foe. These will come to nothing outside of the steadfast love of the Lord. A horse. That's the illustration he gives us here. A horse, a mighty horse and all of its strength it will come to nothing outside of the steadfast love of the Lord. But look here in 18 and 19. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, 
those who hope in his steadfast love. As God sits in heaven, as he looks down, as he sees the inhabitants, sees their hearts, sees their deeds, his eye is on those who hope in him and his steadfast love. His eye, or better yet, his favor, as you might read this, is on those who trust in him. For what purpose? Why, why, why? Verse 19, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Some of you are struggling. You're seeking to overcome things in your life. Outside of God's provision for you. Outside of God's making a way for you. Outside of God's love for you. What you need to trust on in the midst of these things is the steadfast love of the Lord. This is what the text tells us. This is where victory is had. This is where overcoming begins. It begins and ends in the steadfast love of the Lord. He will deliver your soul from death and he will keep you safe. The text tells us in famine, he imagined what two things commonly strike people, death and famine. What things are being affected in your life and what way are you suffering right now in seeking to praise yourself by mustering yourself through it? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your work? Is it in your affairs and dealing with other people? Is it something health-related? The Bible calls us to submit all these things to the steadfast love of the Lord. We need to surrender all of ourselves to the steadfast love of the Lord and trusting and waiting in Him. Because look here in 20 through 22. The Psalms just gets it. We praise God because He is worthy. We praise God because he has put a new song in our heart that came there in Christ. We praise God because of all the ways that he's displayed himself to be worthy of that praise. We praise God on the basis of who he is. And we praise God according to how he calls us to praise him, not how we suppose that it would make us feel comfortable to praise him. If our Father in heaven calls us to shout, calls us to clap, calls us to dance, who are we to sit idly by with a grimace on our face and grin and bear it. Have you thought about that? If God calls you to praise him with every ounce of your being, then why do you hold anything back? To do so, to do so, is to dishonor, to disobey God. He calls us to to worship him with every fiber of our being. Now look here in 20 through 22. The psalmist returns and has a reflection on this. Effectively, they say, look, on the basis of all that God is, on the basis of all that God has done, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. They're saying God is worth it. On the basis of those things we praise about him, our response is to wait on him. On the basis of all those things we know about him, the way that we praise him, the reason we praise him, our soul trusts in him. He is worthy to be trusted. Now look here. Revelation 19.11, speaking of Jesus, says this about him. It says, then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This Jesus who is faithful and true calls you 
to worship him. This Jesus who is faithful and true calls you into salvation and calls you as a worshiper to worship him and to do so with a sense of reverential awe and respect. And the Psalms just doesn't end there. In the midst of their hope, in the midst of their waiting, they have this final prayer in verse 22. It says, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. My prayer for us is that we would be a people who in the midst of praising God would be praying to God for the continued lasting imprint of his steadfast love on us, that it would be transforming us to be true worshipers of him. All praise and honor and glory belong rightfully to God, not to those things around us. All praise and honor and glory ultimately belong to God. And he has equipped you as the upright to worship him. Let me pray for us.